Well, there was a man whose family sent him to the doctor because he complained that he could just never, he could never get to work. He was always sick. And so they were worried about him and they decided to have him checked out. And so the doctor did an examination and then he took the man into another room and he he was going to he was about to explain to the man what his problem was and the man said doc no mumbo jumbo no scientific speak none of that i just want you to tell me what's wrong with me in the plainest possible language and the doctor looked at him and said you want me to say it that way he said yeah just let me know what's wrong doctor said, okay, uh, there's, there's really nothing wrong with you, the doctor said. He said, in fact, your only problem is that you're lazy. And so the man was silent. He was stunned for a second. He just kind of stared at the doctor, and he said, um, um, Doc, can you give me some complicated, fancy-sounding term to explain it uh, so I can tell my family what I have? Well, no one, no one likes to be called lazy, right? No one wants to be called that. But it's something that we have to talk about because the Bible gives lots of warnings about it. It tells us over and over again to be careful of this danger. And um, this is one of these six essential qualities of an effective witness for Christ, and that is to be industrious or to be productive. We've talked about other ones such as boldness and sincerity and transparency and being other-centered. We talked about that last time. And next week, we're going to talk about encouragement. But, but this one, uh, we're, we, we are looking at this, this issue of being productive with the way that we use our life and the gifts that God has given us. The reality is, is that our work matters to God. Our work matters to God. And um, here we have two reasons why our work matters to God. This text gives us two. Just give you the first, first of all. First reason is, is because it gives us a platform to proclaim the gospel. Our work gives us a platform to proclaim the gospel. And, and uh, it, it doesn't matter whether we are um, a, um, a, a, a student in school. It doesn't matter whether we're holding down a job. It doesn't matter whether we're working in the home, whatever it is. Our work gives us a platform to share the gospel. We read this in verse 9. The Apostle Paul wrote, For you remember, brothers, our labor, the word labor could be translated fatigue and exhaustion. Just gives you a picture of the way that Paul approached uh, his life's work. Our labor and toil, the word toil could be translated genuine hardship. So we'll start over again. For, for you remember, brothers, our fatigue and exhaustion and our genuine hardship. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. The reality is, is that the things that we prioritize are really the things that matter to us. All of us have the same amount of time in a day as any other person, Right? Uh, every one of us have as much time in a, in a day as the President of the United States has. And the question is, is how we allocate that time. It tells us a lot about who we are, the way that we use our time, the way that we schedule our time. Now, in, in Paul's day, 
a typical workday was way different than a workday is today. They worked six days a week, and they worked up, worked from sunup to sundown. So that was a typical workday. But what's interesting about, about Paul's life is that he would have worked longer than that because he was a tent maker, and tent makers were known to actually start the day before sunrise, and they were known to work after the sun set. He was a leather worker as part of his job. And so not only was he dealing with his work as a tent maker when he was living in the city, but also he was the leader of the church. And so in his, in his other hours, he was, he was um, I'm sure, in the scriptures. I'm sure that he was spending time discipling people one-on-one, teaching groups of people, constantly working, constantly busy. And the question is, is why did he and Silas do this? Why did he and Silas do this? Well, we notice uh, in the second part of verse 9, he says, uh, We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Interesting, isn't it? He, he worked this way because he didn't want to be a burden to any of the Thessalonian Christians. The word burden means to weigh someone else down with what you're doing or what we're doing. So we become a burden to somebody when we weigh them down. And the reason why Paul worked this way was because he didn't want to weigh anyone else down. He didn't want to become a burden to the Christians in that city. There he had gone, he had preached the gospel, they had come to Christ, and he only wanted to give to them. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be a burden upon them. And why did he do this? Well, because he considered it a platform to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Now, it's important that we recognize that Paul did receive support. He did receive support. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 16. He said this, Even in Thessalonica, he, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So we know that Paul did receive gifts, from the Philippian church while he was there, but it certainly wasn't enough to sustain his life and surely the ministries of the church and probably what Paul was doing was not only working for his own needs, but he was probably supporting these other Christians as the church began. He was providing funds. And why did he do all of this? Why did he work this way? Why did he live this way? Well, it became a platform for him to proclaim the gospel of God. And one of the things that we see, if you read the book very closely, is we will see how central the gospel is to the book. How central the gospel is to the book. One of the things that we talked about last week, but we see very common in churches today, and it's, it's been common in churches for centuries, but where the gospel is either completely snuffed out or it's pushed to the periphery of the church. And the, and the reality is, is that if we have anything that is put in the place of the gospel, central in the life of a church, eventually the gospel will be pushed out to the periphery of that congregation. That's just what will happen. But when we notice Paul's life, the way he lived, the reason why he lived this way, we need to make no mistake about it, was because it gave him a platform to share the gospel, the message of salvation with other people. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the gospel is the good news that, that even though God made us to have a relationship with him, we rebelled against him. 
And as a result of it, we were under God's condemnation and under his wrath. And as a result of that, we were separated from him. We would be separated from him for all eternity in a real place called hell. But God saw us in that miserable condition. And so his son, Jesus, left the glory of heaven and he came and he took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, went to a cross, satisfied the demands of God, paid our debt on the cross so that through faith in him we can have eternal life. That's a wonderful story, the message of the gospel. Without the gospel, we would be hopeless. Notice how often Paul talks about the gospel in this book. We'll just, uh, we'll just show you some examples of it. it. He mentions it six times in this very, very short letter. We noticed, uh, we've already looked at this, but we notice in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And that's one of the things that happens when, when we embrace this gospel by faith. What God does is he places his Holy Spirit in us and he changes our lives. He regenerates us. He makes us into a, a new creation. What we once were, we are no more. It changes us from the inside out. This is what this gospel does. That's why he proclaimed it so faithfully. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. In the midst of much conflict, Paul uh, left a difficult place. When he went to Thessalonica, he went into a difficult place, but it didn't matter. He proclaimed the gospel and God changed the hearts of the people there. Then we notice here in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Once again, we notice here that he realizes that he's been entrusted with a precious gift that is the gospel and he, and he uh, lives his life according to it. Let us continue. We looked at this last week, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. And one more time in the book, he mentions the gospel besides the text that we're looking at today in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 2. And we sent Timothy and our brother, God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Can you see how central the gospel is to Paul's ministry and his life? It is absolutely central. It is so central that he built his whole life around it. And God calls us in turn to build our lives around the gospel. Everything that we do, every interaction, every situation that we find ourselves in. Think about um, the way that we interact with people on any given day. Maybe you're a student in school and you have other students at school. If you were to ask the other kids at school, would they, would they know that you're a follower of Jesus and the way that you live? How about those of you who are in the workplace? Uh, would the coworkers around you, when they see your life, if they found out you were a Christian, would they be surprised? How about um, how about when we're in the store? We just go and visit in a store, and, or not visit in a store, but shop in a store, and uh, we are dealing with the cashier. And uh, we were to leave that interaction, and then that cashier would find out that we are a Christian. Do you think? They would see Christ in us just in that interaction with them. Maybe in one of those times where the change wasn't right, where the service was slow, would they see us? Would they see grace, the kind of grace that we have received? Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, 27, he served in 
toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. Many a sleepless night. You see, um, you see uh, our, our life, our work, gives us a platform to proclaim the gospel. Gives us a platform to proclaim the gospel. Whatever it is that we do, whether we are a stay-at-home mom, whether we are at work, whether we're at school, it gives us a platform to proclaim the gospel. And the question we ask ourselves is, will our lives, will the way that we live our lives, will it attract people to Jesus? Will it attract people to Jesus? Number two, number two, because our testimony matters. Because our testimony matters. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. Now, it's interesting. I think we need to stop for a second and look at that last word in that sentence first. Toward you, believers. This is the way that he defines a Christian as a believer, somebody with active faith in Christ. We cannot be considered a Christian because we maybe are part of a church tradition or maybe we have a, a mother who's really, really godly. Um, Billy Sunday, he put it this way. He said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you an automobile. Uh, Keith Green, I like, I like the way he put it. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. But sometimes we think about it this way. We think that we're part of maybe a Christian home. Maybe we were raised in a church of some kind. And so we assume that we're a Christian because we had Christian tradition in our life. But actually, whether or not we're a true Christian is defined by our belief, by our faith, by our trust in what Christ has done for us. There was um, a very famous figure in American history, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, sorry, Alexander, I'll get to him in a second, Alexander Hamilton. But Aaron Burr Jr., Aaron Burr Jr., Aaron Burr Jr. was raised in one of the most godly families that has ever put down roots we're going to wait a second before we show that, but I'll, we'll look at it in a second. He is from one of the most godly families that has ever put down roots on American soil. His, his father was Aaron Burr Sr. You could have guessed that, right? His father was Aaron Burr Sr. Uh, Aaron Burr Jr. was former vice president of the United States. But Aaron Burr uh, Sr. was the president of Princeton University. He was a godly man. He was a pastor. Uh, he was made president of Princeton University, I believe, after Jonathan Edwards, Aaron Burr's grandfather, refused the job. Jonathan Edwards refuses the job. Aaron Burr Sr. is then chosen. As a young man, he becomes president of Princeton University. He has a wife, Esther, and he has two children, Aaron Burr and his sister. I believe around the time that Aaron Burr was about two years old, his dad died. And that left a crisis at Princeton University. It left a crisis in the whole Christian world, but it left particularly a crisis in that particular family. At that point, Jonathan Edwards, probably the most brilliant man to ever be born on this continent, pastor in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. He was reaching out to the Native Americans in that uh, place. And he was a great scholar and theologian and really one of America's great heroes, men of faith. Jonathan Edwards accept, 
accepted the call from Princeton University then to become the president who would then succeed his son-in-law who had died. Jonathan Edwards goes down to Princeton, and while he's down there, he, smallpox is a terrible thing that, you talk about a pandemic, smallpox was a terrible, terrible pandemic. It was a terrible disease to die of. Jonathan Edwards was convinced he was a man of science also. Not, not only was he a great scholar when it came to the Bible, but a man of science. He believed that it was important that his family be vaccinated. But in those days, they didn't just give you a protein of the vaccine, or they didn't give you a dead virus. They gave you the live virus. So Jonathan Edwards was injected with smallpox vaccine. So was Esther. So was the two children. And... Within a couple of weeks, Jonathan Edwards contracted smallpox from that vaccine. He died. Within a few weeks, maybe months, I'm not sure how much time elapsed, Esther dies. They don't think she died of smallpox, but then she dies. So just in a few weeks, you have this Aaron Burr, little Aaron Burr, probably around two years old, and his sister. They lose their father, their grandfather, their mother, And so then they're taken off to live in Philadelphia for a while until Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, can come down and take them so that she can raise them, their grandmother. So then she goes down to Philadelphia, she picks up the children, and lo and behold, within a short period of time, Sarah dies. So now these two little children lost their father, their mother, their grandparents, and what was going to happen to them? They were passed along from one family to another family. And then finally, they ended up in Timothy Edwards' home. That was their uncle. And he raised the children. But Aaron Burr didn't have the same kind of faith that his father had. He didn't live the same kind of life that his grandfather lived. In fact, Aaron Burr was a man who was in many ways, you could just call him debauched. And... Um, He's the one who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was the sitting vice president in the United States. He was, he was uh, Thomas Jefferson's vice president. And Alexander Hamilton insulted his honor. He felt they had a duel. He killed Alexander Hamilton. And uh, that was essentially the end of his whole political life and career and all that was tied into it. But what we have here is we have a picture of, of his grave. So in the foreground is Aaron Burr's grave. And behind it, this is at the Princeton University Cemetery. I read in one place that his father, Aaron Burr Sr., is the first person buried there. And there's an area called President's Corner. So you have, there you have uh, his father's grave, and you have his grandfather's grave, Jonathan Edwards' grave. And the reason why he wanted to be placed behind His grandfather's grave was because he knew that when the Lord would return, the graves would open up, the bodies would come forth from the ground, and he said that as he saw his father's grave fly open, he said he wanted to catch it, wanted to catch his ankle, the heel of his foot with his hand and ride it up to heaven. You talk about the ultimate riding coattails to heaven. But the reality is, is that you can't do that. You can't hang on to Jonathan Edwards and think that you're going to spend eternity with Christ. You see, 
If you're to spend eternity with Christ, you have to hold on to Christ. As my daughter reminded me this morning, God has only children, not grandchildren. We, we can't, we can't uh, rely on somebody else's faith. That's why we notice right at the very beginning, he, he describes this, he describes them as believers, as believers, who, people who have faith in Christ, whose only hope is Christ. Now, let's back up to the beginning of the verse. At the beginning of verse 10, Paul begins by mentioning them and God, the Thessalonian believers, and God as witnesses. Now, why does he do that? Why does he say you are witnesses and God also? How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, in the, in the Old Testament, a matter had to be established by two or three witnesses. So Paul is now showing he has witnesses to the kind of life that he's saying that he's lived. A life that is holy, righteous, and blameless. Uh, Now, why does he then cite the Thessalonian believers in particular? Well, it's because they can establish the things in Paul's life that they have seen. Now, think about the things, the way that Paul lived his life. Can you imagine what kind of businessman he was? He was a businessman. He was a tent maker. So he he would have had his shop somewhere, and he would have bought his supplies from somewhere, And he would have interacted with customers and he would have interacted with suppliers. And how would he have handled things? How do you think? Do you think he would have, um, he would have been gracious with his suppliers? Do you think, uh, how do you think he would have treated his suppliers maybe when they were late in bringing whatever he needed? Do you think he would have been gracious? Do you think maybe he was thinking of a bigger cause in the way that he would receive his supplies from those people who would have supplied him than, than just to make some money off of the tents? Or, or think about the, the way that he did his work. Now, if you had a choice to buy a tent from the Apostle Paul or some other person, who would you pick? You would have picked the Apostle Paul, right? Why? Because you just know his character, you have read his letters, you have seen his life, you have seen his commitment, and you know based on what we read about him that, that I'm sure that when he, when he made a tent, he did it right. When he did his job, he did his job well. Why did he do it that way? Because he understood, he understood that he had a bigger cause in all of this. As we talked about a minute ago, it was a platform for the gospel, but also, it, our testimony matters. He, he looked at this as an opportunity. He looked at this as a way to spread the gospel. And as a result of it, the way he lived his life had a purpose and had meaning that was beyond just the job that he was doing. And, and the same is true for us. The way we go about our work is a reflection of Christ and the way that we, we live in our relationship with Christ. The kind of work we do, the kind of quality that we do, the work that we do, and whatever it is, whether we're in school, whether we are in a job, whether we're in the home, whatever it is, the quality of the work that we do is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. And so he, he calls on them as witnesses because they can confirm what they could see. Wouldn't that be great not to have any shame? All these people watched his life. They watched the way he handled business. The, they saw the way that he served in the church. They saw all of these things. And when, when he wrote to them, he said, he, he said he left himself open. He said, you can see how holy of a life, righteous life, and a blameless life I lived. You can confirm that, can't you? 
But also he appeals to God. Why does he do that? Because he knew that God could establish what people could not see. God could establish things that people could not see. We've all lived with somebody in our life that tricked us, right? We thought that they were one particular way, and then over a period of time, they showed themselves to be something completely different. And Paul understood that about human nature, and so he makes his highest appeal to God, saying, God knows my heart. God has seen me. And with a clear conscience, he could invoke God in this, in this statement that he's making, knowing that God is a witness to the kind of holy and righteous and blameless life that he's lived. Now, when he just uses this word here for holy, it's kind of an interesting word. It's not the typical word that you see in the Bible for holy. Many of you have probably seen the word uh, hagios, which means to be set apart. When, when, when God saves you, he sets you apart for his purpose. And so he makes you holy. This is a different word. This word refers to the kind of life that conforms to the will of God. When Paul went about his life, when he went about his work, when he went about his ministry, he lived the kind of life that conformed to God's will. Second thing we notice is that he lived a righteous life, lived a righteous life, and that has to do with his dealings with men. He was honest in his dealings. He was honest in the prices that he charged for his work. He dealt with people honorably when he did his job. He did it to the best of his ability. That's the way he lived. And then he was blameless. You know, people had accused Paul and Silas of all kinds of things, as we've talked about before in this book. Ran them out of town. They went to Berea. They ran them out of Berea. But in spite of all those accusations, the people who knew him knew that they didn't stick because he, they knew that none of them were true. He lived a blameless life. Well, what, what are some um, uh, points of application that we can take from this? What are some points of application that we can take from this? There are many, but here, here are three I'd like to offer you. Number one, number one, work is good. Work is good. When God created Adam, we go all the way back to the garden. When God created Adam, he gave him jobs to do prior to his fall and rebellion into sin. That means that work is good and work is a gift and that God wants us to embrace work. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to work it and keep it. And we know that this has a lot of elements to it, this, this word. These are the same words that are given to the Old Testament priests that were to guard and protect the, the temple. We know that Adam then was a priest who was to guard and protect the Garden of Eden. And in spite of that, uh, Adam allowed Satan to come in. He should have judged Satan. He didn't do that. He, he fell into sin and rebellion against God. Adam didn't do the work that God had made him to do. And that's why we have this whole problem with sin in the world. But we can see that even before sin came into the world, God gave people work to do. And I believe that in the new Jerusalem, when we are there with the Lord forever, and we are in the new heaven and new earth, we're all going to have work to do. How do you like that? For all eternity, we're all going to have jobs to do. But those jobs won't be affected by the, by the fall. There won't be the thorns and thistles. We won't work by the sweat of our brow. It'll be pleasurable, be joyful. And so we have this picture that work is good. And also the Bible has lots of warnings about laziness in the Bible. Lots of warnings about laziness. The, the book of Proverbs is full of them. This is, my, this is my favorite. And by the way, the book of Proverbs is such a, a, an amazing book. I remember when I was a, I was a teenager, I had, I had some friends, also some teenage friends of mine, and, and I remember one day this, um, this, this friend of mine, his, uh, his father, 
uh, came in and said, son, if there's one thing I want you to do if I die, I want you to read the book of Proverbs. I want you to read the book of Proverbs over and over and over again. And if we notice the book of Proverbs, it's broken into 31 chapters. And uh, I can't prove it. I can't say definitely for sure. But I believe that it's broken into 31 chapters because it's sort of like God's daily devotion book. Whatever day of the, whatever day of the month it is, open up, open up the book of Proverbs that corresponding day. I guarantee you, if you do that year after year after year, day after day after day, month after month after month, you will always find something in there that you feel like you've never seen before or something that applies to your life that day. Book of Proverbs is full of wisdom, but this is one of my favorite about laziness. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? <laughs> when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Isn't that true? Consequently, not a single person who names the name of Christ should be lazy. It should not be a mark of our life, should not be part of our life, should not be a thought that we entertain uh, because, because God has given us a purpose. It's a platform. It's a platform to, to extend the gospel. It is a, is a means by which we can live as a godly testimony before a world that embraces laziness and, and, and thinks it's something that's good. But you know when we do things that are different than the world does, people have their eye on them and say, what's different about that person? When that person goes and they do their job, when they, when they go to work and they work hard, when, when they could get away with a little bit less, why do they do that? Why, why, do, they, why do they listen to their, uh, their, their demanding bosses? Why do, they, why do they do that? Well, it's because we are Christians, and so we have a higher authority, and we are doing our work not just to please our bosses, we're doing our week to ple- work to please God. And so whether if we're a Christian kid and we're in school, we work hard, not just to, if we're a homeschooler, not just to please our mom or our dad. We, we, if, we're, if, we're in a, if we're in a brick and mortar school, we don't go just to, to, just to please our teacher no, we go to please the Lord who's, 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 who sees everything that we do. We want to honor him with, with, with what we do and what we have. We want to be a testimony before the world and show that there's something different about us than everyone else. We want to do our work in such a way that we can contribute to help other people in need, not to be people who are there just to take and to take and take and use what other people have done for our own benefit and our own purpose. You see, Christians, Christians, by the new nature that we've been given, we are givers. We are givers. One of the things I love about this church is that there's so many givers, so many generous givers. This year, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people have been very badly hurt by this pandemic. You know that, financially and otherwise. You know that, and we, we, don't, publish, we don't publish this, we don't put it out there, we don't say a lot about it, we do it secretly. But we have given away... We have given away thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to people in need this year 
uh, uh, many, many times what we've ever done in other years. Uh, it, it's, it's more than many years combined because people have come along. There have been people who have been concerned about other people who are going through difficult things. And so what they do is they say, hey, I'd like to help this person. And sometimes they'll come to the church and they'll say, I want to help this person anonymously. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna give, to give a, give a check to the church. And, and Ellen knows all about it because she is our treasure. But they will come and they will do it anonymously. And then we will be able to, we can pass things on to people to help them in their time of need because Christians want to give and they want to help and it's part of what God has done it's part of the new nature and that's why we're so different than the world we're different we're generous we're hardworking. this is this is what it means to be part of the the body of Christ this is what this is what this is part of being transformed by the gospel of Jesus we notice here in uh in in uh uh let's see second Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 Paul says this, this is in the next book. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Paul had a way of putting things, didn't he? <laughs> not busy at work, but busy bodies. That's not what we want to be, right? We want to be a faithful testimony of what it means to be a follower of Christ in a world that is so full of sloth. We can be people who are who are vigorous and energetic and do what we do in order to glorify him and to be a blessing to other people. Secondly, work that glorifies Jesus is really good. Work is good. Work that glorifies Jesus is really good. Now, all work should ultimately glorify Jesus. Jim Elliott said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The Lord Jesus, he said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and, 19 and 20. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You hear that? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where are we going to lay up our treasure in our life? Are we going to lay it up before the Lord? Or are we going to live to just hoard and to keep to ourselves that which we have? You see, that which we, that's which, that which we give, that which we contribute to other people uh, in other lives and God's work, those things are going to be stored up in eternity forever. There'll be things that we will do that we will forget all about that when we get to eternity, we're going to be reminded of it because God won't forget The reality is, is that our service to Christ is empowered by the gospel. Everything in the Christian life is, in, is empowered by the gospel. The gospel isn't just that message that we embrace when we first come to Christ, but it's a message that transforms every part of our life. And you know in our service to the Lord, here's the amazing thing, is that God gives us the gifts to do it. Not only does he change our hearts and he gives us a new nature and he washes away our sin and he gives us new life. But, but on top of that, he empowers us with these gifts. The Bible has uh, lots of them that it lists. There's, there's at least three different places. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. These gifts include things like administration, discernment, evangelism. Think about Billy Graham. How many of you remember, uh, uh, how many of you came to know the Lord? Maybe by watching Billy Graham. Anybody here? 
Okay, there we have, we have one hand. I remember watching Billy Graham and, and, uh, and wanting to jump through the television set when he called on people to follow Jesus. But if you just sit down and you read Billy Graham's sermons, you'll, you'll notice that they're not anything different than any other evangelist, what a, another evangelist would say. But what made it different? Well, God gave him an extraordinary gift of evangelism. So when he preached the gospel, God empowered the gospel, and God changed hearts as a result of it. And that's the wonderful thing about using the gifts that God has given us, these spiritual gifts that God has given us. He empowers us for ministry, and he gives us joy as we use them. These are gifts beyond anything our natural frame could ever have. He, 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 he's, he goes, we, we have other ones like, like faith and giving and helps and hospitality and leadership and mercy and serving and teaching and wisdom. But one of the great promises is that every Christian, every believer is given a spiritual gift. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 through 11, it tells us, uh, he, we, we're told, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He gives us all a gift. If you are a person who names the name of Jesus, if you are a person who has a personal relationship with Jesus, God has given you a spiritual gift and when you use it, he empowers you in your work and he fills you with absolute joy as you use it for him. The third thing, third thing we notice. God will call us to account for the way that we live the lives he has given us. God will call us to account for the way that we live the lives that he has given us. Just as sure as the sun came up this morning. Now last night, did you expect the sun to come up this morning? You probably expected it to come up a little bit earlier than you were hoping, right? <laughs> With a time change. But... Just as sure as the sun came up this morning, just as sure as you were last night that it would come up this morning, there will come a day when we are going to stand before the King of Kings. There's going to come a day where Christ will evaluate our lives. Now, if you know Christ, if you have a relationship with him, you've already passed through the judgment. You've already passed through the judgment. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he bore the wrath of God. On your behalf, you are redeemed you will never face God's wrath if you belong to Jesus. If you don't know Christ, turn to Christ today. That is the only way we can be rescued from his wrath. The wrath that we deserve is by trusting in Christ. He's the one who is our substitute. But believers, we too will stand before God and we'll give an account of the way that we lived our lives. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15, notice what he says. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, and he's talking about your service in the life of the church, in the body of Christ. That's the context here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest or made known, for the day will disclose it. Our work one day will become known. That day will be disclosed because it will be revealed by fire. By the way, if you, if you build with um, things like, um, if, you, if you build your life 
by, by things like um, gold, silver, and precious stones? Will they survive the fire? Yeah. How about wood, hay, and stubble? Will they survive a fire? No, they're going to disintegrate. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. One day, every one of our lives are going to be evaluated. One day, there's going to be a quote-unquote final exam. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only, but only as through fire. So yeah, there's going to be some people who will have very little to offer Christ on that day. I don't believe that there's a single person in this room who wants to be that person where they will be, yes, they'll be like ones jumping through the flames, but that's it. Nothing to offer Jesus. Think about it just for a second. You know, imagine that, that day. It's going to come just like if the Lord doesn't tarry, If the Lord doesn't tarry, the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning, right? It's going to happen. And imagine there being in the presence of the one with nail-pierced hands and say, Lord, you know, I was busy. I mean, think about it. I had life going on. I had people to deal with, and I had a busy job, and I... Lots of kids around me that I had to deal with and raise. I had, you know, I mean, I had the opera. You know, that was important. And, uh, and you know, the Red Sox, they play all summer. And the Patriots play in the fall. And the, 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 the Bruins and the Celtics, well, they play all winter and spring. I mean, Lord... And then we're peering on the one who has the nail-pierced hands. Who left the glory of heaven to come to live among human beings who rebelled against him and went to a cross and died on the cross for our sin so that we could have eternal life. And we say to him, Lord, we're just too busy for you. I don't think any of us want to offer that to him, do we? Besides, there's nothing better than serving Christ. I mean, those of you who have ever worked with Awana, you know what I'm talking about. Those kids come in, they're so excited. They're thrilled. It's like the highlight of their week. They, they can't wait to be part of it. And, and they're happy, and they want to learn about Jesus. And they, they're working on their memory verses, and they love the Bible stories, and they want to sing, and it's It's great. And you get to be there with them and you get to use your gifts in that ministry. Or I think about in the youth ministry, um, what, what a wonderful thing it was. Just a couple of, couple of weeks ago, we had a Sunday night baptism. We had, we had so many different people representing so many different parts of the congregation. We had a, we had a kid who was pre-youth group. We had, we had youth group kids. We had, we had um, people who are, who are now on the other side of youth group. <laughs> One college and career. But then, but then some on the other side of college and career. 
And what a beautiful thing it is just to, just to have the opportunity to watch people grow. You serve in the, the youth ministry and you see them come in as, as young and then, and then all of a sudden you see them go through each year of their life and they grow in Christ. And, and then they have insights into scripture and they, 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 they know more and more and they develop a passion for Christ. And when we see that, we experience it. I mean, it'll make your heart leap out of your chest. There, there is nothing, that's the biggest thing about, about when Christians, when we don't serve the Lord, we're, we're being robbed of the joy that we have when we serve him. Or when, when we get together and we have certain days where, where, um, where maybe we put up the crash, we take down the crash, we do some kind of work day, and, and all kinds of people come out and they just enjoy each other during that day, and we do more flapping of our gums sometimes than we do work, but, but it's just a joy to be together serving God together. Or, or how about all the people who are working in, working in the, the kitchen once, once, once uh, we have meals start again? That was just such a big part of our church's life, and, and what a joy it was when, when people would line up and they would serve one another and they would see one another the Greeters, uh, uh, one, one person who's been, been greeting for the last year told me, he said, the thing, the thing that I've loved most about greeting over the last year is getting to know so many people. It, it's such a, a joy to serve God. The, the, the ones who are, who are robbed of this joy are the ones who are not using their gifts. And it's true, ministry is hard sometimes. Sometimes it's hard. People don't always act the way we want them to act, right? Sort of like... Um, Heard the story about a mother who went to wake up her son for church one Sunday morning. She said, get up. And he didn't get up. She said, she came back again after a few minutes. Get up, son. Time for church. He didn't get up. She came again. She said, get up, son. It's time to go to church. He said, I don't want to go. She said, well, give me a good reason why. He said, I'll give you two. They don't like me and I don't like them. She said to her son, well, let me give you two reasons why you should go to church. First of all, you're 47 years old. <laughs> Second of all, you're the pastor. <laughs> yeah, you know, ministry, ministry can, be, can be hard. It can be difficult. And sometimes it pushes us away from it. But there's no greater joy than to serve Christ. And it is the only thing that we will do in this life that will last into the next for all eternity. Have you, have you come to a place where you've trusted Christ, where now you, you, you experience a relationship with him that there's, there's nothing like it in all the world? Nothing more meaningful than to belong to him? Have you experienced what it is, a life of service, serving him? Oh, there's nothing more joyful, nothing more wonderful Nothing more that will thrill your soul than to serve the living King of Kings. Give your life for Him completely, without reservation. You'll never regret it. 